The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Terzakian. Welcome back. Well, you know, it just seems like the traffic either by visual or experience going on the roads is just sort of the congestion's back. You look at the charts in terms of yeah. congestion charts, all major cities in the world are almost pretty much back to normal or greater. We have U.S. gasoline demand more than the five-year high. I don't That's know what, right. what the yeah. numbers are. Inventories are pulled down. The inventories are pulled down. It's quite remarkable how fast the rebound has been. And so today we're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects that uh, I can't seem to shake. It's a little bit like a dog with a bone, and that's energy security. And I guess maybe it's because I'm a child of the Cold War. I do vividly remember the oil price shocks of the 70s and into the 80s when I started my career in the energy business. And so whatever way you cut it, I mean, we are still shackled to oil and gas, especially in the mobility market. And there are things that are going on, not only in mobility, but in other areas that are quite concerning, in my opinion, from an energy security standpoint. And it's not actually just the whole mobility thing. There's a cybersecurity and so on. So that's what we're going to talk about today, right? Yes. But then I think we should talk about your recent article, too. Yeah. So you wrote an article about why we should be thinking about energy security now with new investments in the energy transition. So mm-hmm. we'll take these historical learnings and then think about what they might mean when we apply them to clean energy. And you had five ideas there in terms of yeah, areas recommendations of uh, how we can not only approach net zero and the decarbonization, but necessarily we have to think about how to design these systems of the future to accommodate energy security. All right. So we'll get to that. We will put a link to the write-up in the show notes as well. But let's start with some historical examples. One I think everyone knows quite well, but uh, Mm -hmm. it's worth repeating because it's uh, such a a great example. So obviously, Line 5, which was built in 1953, moves oil from Western Canada, and then uh, the pipe drops down into the U.S. before crossing back into Canada via the Straits of Mackinac that are between Lake Michigan and Lake Huron before arriving in Sarnia, Canada's major refined product center. And as you know, there's been a lot of talk about potentially shutting this pipe down, although Enbridge is fighting that as well as the Canadian government and Mm -hmm. the the other provincial governments as well, because it would have a huge impact on the refined product supply in Ontario, but also on the U.S. side of the border Mm -hmm. as well. It's a story that's not over, but I think, Jackie, the question is, historically, why did it go through the U.S.? Yeah, so this is a really interesting history that uh, over 50 years ago, there was a huge debate in Canada about this pipeline. And C.D. Howe, he was a minister of everything, they called him, but he was the trade minister at the time in 1949. When these plans were being considered, he was really pushing for an all-Canadian route. But the developer of the pipeline, which was Imperial Oil at the time, convinced him, get this, Mm -hmm. it would add $10 million to the cost, And it would delay the pipeline by a full year. And they didn't want to do that. And so they shortchanged Canadian energy security because of the capital cost and the the time schedule. And it seems so kind of short-sighted now looking back on it. I mean, I'm sure that was a lot of money at the time. But uh, to think that uh, we would have a key artery of our energy security go through the U.S. And and then through this situation here with the lake, which maybe wasn't considered 
an issue then, but it certainly is now. Well, it was also an era where we were led to believe that we could import oil through our eastern ports from countries afar where big oil, the big oil companies were still dominated by Western interests. And so we felt secure in a sense that we were able to get oil into the central and eastern Canadian provinces without necessarily having an expensive west-to-east artery, as you called it. You know, that's a great point, though. The economics all drove that, too, though, because even today, why do we send all our oil to the Midwest of the United States, like 70% or something of our oil Mm -hmm. goes that direction, instead of having all Canadian oil be used in Quebec and in eastern Canada. And it's because it's cheaper to get that offshore oil, like that's Mm -hmm. a cheaper crude oil barrel for them to buy, than to buy it in western Canada and pay the transportation. And so generally, you sell to the closest market because that's going to get you, you know, the best price as a producer and it's going to be the most competitive for the refiners as well. And so economics really drove why we are so dependent on the U.S., right? Selling to the closest market, but it hasn't really done us well in terms of energy security, both within Canada, but also only having one customer. Because, you know, by selling to the closest market, we never developed other markets. No, we never did. And, you know, it's a very peculiar country, Canada, when you look from the outside in, because it's the only major oil-producing country that is actually not energy secure. It's not energy secure. You look from the outside in and you realize, well... If something happens, such as the Line 5 artery gets cut, or there's another oil embargo, or there's uh, international shortages of oil, Central and Eastern Canada have a problem. Yeah, well, and uh, I guess we've seen, you you had your historic story about uh, the oil from Canada making it all the way around around, uh, North America. Yeah. And did it go through the Panama Canal well, at that point? Well, it did. So we ended up shipping the oil during the 1970s oil price shocks from Edmonton to Vancouver, put it on a Greek tanker, which went all the way around the Panama Canal, up the west coast of Florida and eastern United States, into Portland, Maine, where it was put into a pipeline and eventually shipped back into Canada. I mean, that's why I called it the long way around. It's kind of silly to think that that's what we have to do if we have central and eastern Canada cut off from oil, and we'll do have to do it again in the event that Line 5 is cut. So, I mean, this is a peculiarity of our country, is that despite the fact that we export way more, I don't exactly know what the exact number is, of the four and a half or so million barrels a day we produce, the vast majority is exported to the United States, and we're not energy secure. Yeah, I think 75% of that yeah. or so goes to the United States. We'll put a link to that story, The Long yeah. Way Around. That's a great story. We can put a link yeah. to There's the audio file. The audio version is uh, is the one to listen to. I love that one. Okay, we'll put a link to that and then to the written one as well. Mm -hmm. I do want to say that Sonovus actually very recently did the long way around. They did? As well. You know, they've only done it once because that's really not the very most economic route. The Eastern Canadian refiners can access cheaper crude oil just off the Atlantic Basin there. But it's physically possible. It's not necessarily economic. Now, I did want to follow up with C.D. Howe. I know he'd be looking down at the situation now and saying, I told you so. But he didn't give up on his quest for energy security for Canada. And by 1958, he won another battle there with the natural gas pipeline, Hmm. which is currently the TC Energy mainline that connects Canada with Ontario. So that pipe they wanted it to go, well, the developer at the time, hmm. it wasn't TC Energy, wanted it to go through the U.S. because it was pretty expensive to go through the Canadian Shield and much more difficult construction. But uh, he stepped up and said, 
we got to have this go through Canada for energy security. And the Canadian government actually stepped up to pay the extra costs for uh, the pipeline because it was going to cost more. So the private capital said, I'm doing the cheapest thing. And the government said, you know, I'm going to help you pay for that so that we can have energy security. This is a fascinating story, and I'm going to let you in on a little secret. So in my energy file collection, I actually have an original typewritten diary log of that set of debates really? from 1958. Wow, yeah. I didn't even know that. Yeah, so I'll uh, have to dig it out and showcase it in my energyfile.org collection here one of these days. But uh, it's fascinating. I've read it, and it's been a few years since I've read it. But you're exactly right. I mean, it was a very difficult debate to win, which seems like such a no-brainer to have the pipeline completely sovereign on our side of the border. Yeah. Rather yeah. than having to have it pass through somebody else's territory and then be subject to other jurisdictions, notably individual states, as in the case of Line 5 on the oil side. Well, and I think, you know, government money going towards that, it can make sense, right? Because the private capital mm-hmm. is going to say, well, I'm going to do the thing that grits me the greatest return. Right. And they don't really suffer too much with Canadian energy security problems the right. way Canadian government does. So I think there can be a win-win there in terms of, okay, government can step in and avoid themselves a lot more costly problems later that can really hurt the economy mm-hmm. and, and hurt the government and jobs and things like that. We are waking up to these sorts of things and realizing that, okay, it's time to stop skimping on energy security. I think the pandemic has highlighted the need to repatriate supply chains for vital supplies, including energy. But we have the Colonial Pipeline situation that emerged as well, which is a cyber security issue, which is one that is increasingly a problem. Yeah, 60 Minutes just covered this. I didn't realize that uh, it's getting quite frequent how this is happening, not just only to pipeline companies, but all sorts of companies and even governments. So the Colonial Pipeline, I'm sure everyone's aware, is this major refined product pipeline that connects the massive U.S. Gulf Coast refining center to the U.S. East Coast. And it moves 3 million barrels a day, which is the equivalent of about 15% of all of the refined product consumption in the United States. You know, this is another one with the economics dominated here, right? So Mm -hmm. if you go back in time, there used to be a lot of smaller refineries on the U.S. East Coast. But what happened was these refiners in the Gulf Coast, they're very complex and very big. You know, sometimes they're three, four times larger than some of those refineries that were on the East Coast. And they could process crude oil into gasoline and diesel way cheaper than those East Coast refiners were. And so with the Colonial Pipeline, they were able to deliver into the East Coast market and basically put those small refineries out of business. But what that did do, and and I don't think a lot of people kind of had full understanding of this, is made the East Coast so dependent on this one piece of infrastructure for all of the refined products. So that may be like the most economic thing to do is to build one big pipeline and then to connect it to the biggest, most efficient refineries. But then you have this vulnerability. Yeah, vulnerability because of basically what's called a concentration risk. You know, you have too much concentration on one piece of infrastructure. And if there's something that happens that takes out that infrastructure, such as a cyber attack, then you're in trouble and uh, you have no recourse. Yeah. And I mean, the thugs and thieves that do this sort of thing recognize how valuable this infrastructure is. And um, we're going to ask for a lot of money, right? Because they're going to know that society's having trouble functioning, as we saw. Like people were starting to hoard 
they were lining yeah. up at gas stations. It doesn't take long for people to start to panic when they yeah. don't think they're going to have energy. I mean, when the lights go out, you sort of go, wait, what's going on here in a storm or whatever? But when you realize that there is a shortage looming, the hoarding psychology is quite severe and, and can really get out of control, as we saw with toilet paper. Yeah, exactly. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, <laughs> it doesn't take much to get people to running to the shelves or running to the pumps when there's any hint of shortage. And that can have fairly severe economic impacts in the worst case, as it did in the 1970s oil price shocks. So, um, you know, other examples of energy security issues, the cold snap in Texas not long ago that caused the power crisis. I mean, that had its own set of issues. We had a podcast on that not long ago, so we won't belabor it too much. But it's all part and parcel of the same thing of taking too much for granted in terms of feeling invincible to your supply chains of vital necessities to live, work, and play on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis. Well, and we talked about it quite a bit when we had uh, Joshua Rhodes and we had Blake Schaefer on the mm-hmm. podcast. That was a really good one. But I think it also shows the importance, as we think about new clean energy, we're going to get to that, yeah. but the importance of resiliency. It's great that we can go to all these lower carbon sources, but they also have to be resilient, and we could have outages that last many, many days, right, right. You know, as, as we saw there. Yeah, but I think the big issue is that you do not want to be dependent upon foreign actors being in control of your energy supply. I mean, we've got uh, even sort of like current examples that have been percolating, which is Europe's dependence on Russian gas, the whole transit of the Russian gas through the Ukraine. I think that was a 2009 example. Yeah. And now we've got the Nord Stream and the Nord Stream 2 and the whole geopolitical gymnastics around all of that. But, you know, what concerns me most is... A couple of, uh, maybe it was not even a couple, maybe it was one sentence in that International Energy Agency report on achieving net zero. Basically, an acknowledgement that in the drive to get to net zero amongst the members of the International Energy Agency, which are dominantly Western countries, that we are going to create a greater dependency upon OPEC and dominantly Saudi Arabia and Russia. And it was sort of like a matter of fact a little bit of an acknowledgement that, hey, this might cause some geopolitical. I think it's very dangerous. I mean, this to me is a replay potentially of the 1970s where you get yourself in a position where others can control the market, others can control the supply chains. And here we are where we have a situation where Canadian and American production is effectively capped, expected to decline, investors driven by divestment movements are basically saying, blow down your assets. Well, okay, that's fine. But if you don't proportionately curb your consumption, then you are increasingly exposing yourself to actors who are frankly rubbing their hands at all the extra money they're going to make by selling it to us and also controlling the price because we no longer have the ability to to actually create a free market situation as we did with the shale oil era in the previous 10 years. So anyway, I could go on and on. I I think that this is uh, something that is very concerning over the course of the next 15 years, but that hopefully past 15 years, we're going to hopefully do things and make decisions today that will make us more resilient past that point. Well, you know, I would say in that scenario, 
the net zero, which we talked about. It's a very difficult scenario to achieve. Didn't the uh, Saudi oil minister call it La La Land or something yeah, like that? Like a referring but, to the movie, yeah. Yeah, but uh, if you were to achieve driving oil demand down to 25 million barrels a day over the next 30 years, then even though more and more of that market share is held by Middle Eastern countries or Russia, mm-hmm. you know, you're less and less dependent on oil. So that would be the thing that would offset that in that type of scenario. But like you said, you have to drive your actual demand down. If you continue to just use as much oil, but you shut down your own oil industry, then that's going to get you nowhere, right? But I think we can learn, though, that you say, well, you can drive it down to 25 million barrels a day or whatever the number is. There's still a dependency. And some of the dependency is for vital uses that are key to your economy. In other words, you don't have to have a pan-economy shock you can have a localized shock within some industries that are still dependent upon that commodity that can do a lot of damage to your economy. Right, and especially, like you said, in the next 15 years where there's still a lot of dependency. But there are suggestions that um, it was in that write-up, Jackie, that you mentioned that's been uh, put forth. Let's think about this today. We have a unique opportunity where we are thinking about how to repipe, rewire our entire energy economy in the pursuit of net zero, well, isn't this an ideal time to also think about how we put these systems into place such that we are not so vulnerable to these sorts of vagaries, whether they're digital, physical, political, or otherwise? Yeah, like be the CD how of the 1950s and think, what do we need to do now to avoid problems later? And sometimes it might be worth spending more money now because it puts us in a better position. So your first one, your first suggestion was avoid putting vital infrastructure in other countries. Well, I think we've learned that one. (laughs) Well, yeah, as I said in that article, like, you know, would you put your electrical breaker box in your neighbor's house? I don't think so. So why would we do that with any vital, whether it's electrical, liquids, gaseous, whatever the energy sources are? We have to have sovereignty over it. I would say, though, that sometimes if you're landlocked, you have no options. And you talked briefly about the European dependence Mm -hmm. on Russian gas. You know, they didn't really have the option necessarily to stop using Russian gas, although they did build more LNG regas terminals to be able to get gas from other places. But they went for diversity in that case by building paths through uh, different countries like Turkey directly under the water, uh, even though it was really expensive to do that with the Nord Stream, and Belarus. So they just went for diversity. but. If you can't keep it within your own country, at least have multiple suppliers and options. Have multiple suppliers and contingency plans that hopefully don't involve something like the long way around we talked about earlier. And I think it's important to create an environment for energy competitions. You know, customers should have a choice of suppliers. And I think this is where the whole electrification thing is really positive in a sense, especially for mobility, because... If you think about one source of supply being hydrocarbon-based fuels, it's almost a monopoly, right? It's a Mm -hmm. monopoly on one kind of system, and we need to diversify the system. So the more we bring in alternative modes of mobility, say electrification or hydrogen-based, that involves electrification as well of some sort. But I think you sort of get the gist. You just want to have, oh, if I can't gas up my fuel vehicle, I've got an electric vehicle. If the electric vehicle's out, I can go to my hydrogen vehicle. I'm not going to own all three. But I think from a societal perspective, if you have more alternatives, it just makes sense. Well, and you think about it, like the hydrocarbon-based system, it does require large economies of scale. So for example, we built these big pipelines. They tend to be monopolies Mm -hmm. or big transmission lines. 
because uh, that's the most economic thing to do. We had yeah. to put in regulation so that the price could be competitive. By having a renewable energy coming from lots of different places, you get away from some of those mm-hmm. vulnerabilities by having just you know, one point of failure or one company that can yeah. control price and things like that. Decentralizing where possible. I think this is also where we have a very unique opportunity right now, where you know, whether it's a colonial pipeline, which is concentration on a massive scale, the Texas power grid, you want to be able to decentralize almost down to the community level if you can. And community-based power sources, I think, is really important. And, you know, we're actually seeing uh, hints of this decentralization right down to the home level. The new Ford F-150 Lightning, for example, claiming uh, that when you plug it in, assuming your house is wired appropriately, that if your power goes off the grid, then you'll be able to take that decentralized power out of your truck and at least have a couple days, depending on what your, won't drive your hot tub, but it'll drive uh, sort of your vital electrical needs. Yeah, I found that kind of interesting when they released that truck, that that was a key selling point, right? That just shows you, I think with the Texas power crisis and these California wildfires, a lot more consumers are valuing resiliency. And, you know, you think about it, this decentralization, we talked about rooftop solar last week, but or a few weeks ago, but it really could actually make the energy transition a lot more economic. For instance, you know, if everyone gets electric cars, then we will really increase the energy consumption in our homes. It might double or something, or maybe mm-hmm. even more on average. And we would have to build out all sorts of infrastructure to support that. If everybody put solar panels and batteries in their home, then maybe the existing infrastructure will be okay. And maybe collectively, that's a lot cheaper way of doing it because we don't have to build those very difficult infrastructure. Mm -hmm. It's also costly, but also it creates the resiliency, you know, so it has all these win-win features. And I think you're going to see more of the decentralized. I think decentralized, whether it's right down to the home, things with like rooftop solar or community level generation, You know, there'll be great integration for sure, but if the grid goes down by some cyber attack or whatever, the freeze-outs or whatever, lightning strikes, I don't know, you will have much more resiliency. Oh, and also even in commercial operations, you know, there's a lot of rooftops there in some of these big warehouses and things that can uh, continue to function without the power. Yeah, you need a lot of batteries, but I think that's a big value add, and it's actually going to probably make energy transition more economic than building these centralized facilities. Yeah. And, you know, I think we've already talked about it, diversifying to avoid concentration. Concentration risk is just too much dependency upon one source, one big supplier, one big supply chain can create a lot of problems. And Line 5 is a great example of that. I mean, it's all of Central and Eastern Canada's oil supply well, not all, but I don't know what percentage is a high percentage. Oh, yeah, it's it's all it's of, all. of the like Sarnia refining complex and even into Quebec. 500 and some thousand barrels a day mm-hmm. into yep. Quebec. Like, dependent upon one complex of refinery, one pipeline. I mean, come on, anybody from the outside looking in would sort of look at the situation and say, what have you done here? So, you know, diversifying to avoid concentration, uh, I think is important. I think it's even important right now. I mean, yes, we're transitioning to all these new areas. But, uh, I mean, we're still going to need two, three decades of oil across the country. So it's not too soon to think about this stuff. And I think there's actually a lot of chance that we're going to be a lot more diverse than we have been for, like, Mm -hmm. the last 50 years. Because you think about it, like, I don't think any one of these things is going to do everything. Like, I think we're probably going to need hydrogen for long-distance hauling. 
we'll see what happens with batteries, but I think there's going to be limits to what batteries mm-hmm. can do there. I think for what well, we saw it with the IEA report, the net zero report, they assumed aviation still requires biofuels, that liquid fuels are going to be needed for mm-hmm. some things that we do. I think hydrogen is going to work, maybe for in some industrial purposes, electricity for others. So I think we're going to just be a lot more diverse than we have been. We're all reliant on oil and natural gas for 80% of our energy and coal, right? right. And I think we're going to have a lot more diversity in our supply, which is a good thing. It's just paramount that we get it right. We've got the opportunity to get it right. I think the final recommendation is let's conduct some stress tests, even in advance. Let's think about all the different scenarios that could ensue and ensure that we build resilient sources of energy going forward. Yeah, and I think that Texas power crisis was a great example. They talked about the fact that they had tested all these scenarios, but not everyone in isolation, not like multiple problems at once. And I think we got to get way better at testing what could happen and then, Mm -hmm. you know, thinking about, well, what could you do today to avoid that? So there was one thing I was thinking, Peter, that wasn't in your suggestions that I thought we should talk about is, it was in the IEA Net Zero report that energy security is going to change. You know, today it's all about oil supply from the Middle East, but in the future it's going to be about key minerals and rare earths from other places, right? And I was thinking about that, like, it is very different though. Yes, there's going to be energy security issues in the short term as we build up our infrastructure. But a lot of these clean energy options are much more sustainable in in that once you have them, they can produce energy for you. So for example, today we need to import into Canada every single day. We need to get that every single day. Mm -hmm. In the future, if we had solar panels, wind farms, batteries, you wouldn't need that every day. Once you have that infrastructure, you have energy security once it's in your border. And furthermore, as we've learned that those batteries, eventually they won't be as good, but we can actually recycle those minerals and use them again. So I feel like there's a period where we're going to be quite dependent on some of these countries, but it's not going to last forever. Eventually, we're going to create an inventory of clean energy that's within our country, and we aren't going to be as dependent. Yeah, and you create that circular economy of reusing and mitigate against some of the dependencies and vulnerabilities that we talked about. So, you know, I think we're probably a couple decades away from achieving that. And the decisions that we make today will affect whether or not we are going to be more or less energy secure 20 years out, because that's the way it was with C.D. Howe back in the, what was it, 1940s, 50s? 1948. 1948. So, you know, we have to be thinking about this stuff today to make sure that uh, we have the four things that people want in their energy. And uh, these two are lessons from my energy file collection. I've got old utility bills that tout cheap, clean, safe, and secure energy. And uh, cheap and clean, of course, are top of mind these days. Safe is something that is just taken for granted that, uh, okay, we don't electrocute ourselves, so on and so forth. But security has often taken a backseat, especially over the last few decades. And I think it should be definitely elevated at a time when we can make some key decisions that will benefit us for decades to come. All right, with that, we've got lots of reading for you to do, lots of links there to Energy File that we'll put in there, as well as Peter's write-up. And thanks to our listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.